Hello, and welcome back to The Lamp Post Listener. My name is Daniel. I'm Phil. And this is a podcast where we journey chapter by chapter through C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. This is chapter 7 of The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, How the Adventure Ended. This has also been a very good chapter. You're really enjoying these, okay? Yeah. Good. And you said earlier that you enjoyed this one particularly as well. And this is a pretty important chapter. It is very the, rich in metaphorical content. Yeah, I mean, this is I f- probably the most famous chapter of the book. I feel like what happens here with Eustace and Aslan, spoiler alert, Aslan shows up, I think is probably pretty well known even outside of the the Narnian Chronicles. I mean, I feel like I, you know, I hear people ta- use this example of what's going to happen with the dragon and in Aslan, often even outside of our small world of, of Narnia lovers. So yeah. it's a really great it's a really great passage here, a really great chapter in general, but especially this um, baptism of Eustace, if you will, is pretty important in the in the entire canon of Narnia. So you want to jump into it? Let's go. Do you have any before we actually get started? I should have asked you anything we got to fix from last time. Nope. It was perfect. We've it been on a roll. There's we no have mistakes. finally achieved perfection you know what's funny is that i don't even do any editing to the podcast anymore this is exactly yeah. what it sounds like we don't make any mistakes it's just easier to not make mistakes that's a lot easier I that's know. why i write in pen <laughs> well in the last episode in chapter six eustace woke up to the startling discovery that he had become a dragon and he wasn't too happy about it was he he was not and it, the chapter ended on a little bit of a cliffhanger although i don't I don't know if it was a cliffhanger. It just ended in the middle of a conversation. It did. And it was a real page turner because you were curious why they were looking at the bracelet. Yeah. It was an odd thing. Uh, But here we are with chapter seven. So I've got my chapter summary. Are you ready to go? Let's hear it. Caspian and his crew discovered that the dragon on the beach is Eustace, who was unable to explain how he came to be the creature. Over the next few days, Eustace uses his new body to help the crew of the Dawn Treader. He provides food and warmth to the crew, as well as a new mast for the ship. During this time, he is comforted with stories from Reepicheep. One morning, Edmund is surprised to find a human Eustace walking towards the camp. Eustace tells Edmund the story of his undragoning. He explains how Aslan appeared to him and brought him to a pool of water. After several unsuccessful attempts of peeling off his own skin, Eustace allows Aslan to help. The pain is tremendous, but eventually Eustace enters the pool and transforms back into a boy. Caspian names the island Dragon Island, and the Dawn Treader sets sail. Well done. What is that, 149? It was 150, exactly. 150. Yeah, I, was, I had a lot more. A couple seasons ago, we were doing 142 to 147, but now it's 150 every time. Almost. I mean, I do. We've talked about this a little bit. This it's just more content. There's there's more stuff in these chapters. There definitely yeah. is than I've, way back to the wardrobe. There was a lot less. Ha- not like that it was worse, but there was less happening for sure. Yeah. Initial reaction, Phil. What what do you have from this chapter? The whole process of Aslan removing his dragon body mm-hmm. and restoring him. I just. I was very immersed in that scene and I am so grateful that it was written this way. And it just gives you yet another way to think about what Christ has done for us. Yeah, absolutely. What are your initial reactions? My my big takeaway, and I've never noticed this before until I was, you know, studying and preparing for, for recording this episode, is the prominence that stories play in this chapter. So three specific times uh, Lewis mentions stories. The first one is that, you know, Eustace doesn't know any of the, he didn't know any of the right books, and so he couldn't really tell the story well 
of his his becoming the dragon as a dragon. He tries to write it out a couple of times. He can't do it. Right. And then later on in the chapter, as he's being comforted by Reepicheep, Reepicheep is using stories to kind of tell him, look, this this happens sometimes, and it's going to be okay. So he uses yeah. stories to encourage him. And it's a plethora of stories as well. Exactly. And then lastly, after Eustace is, I love the way he's undragoned, right? Yeah. After he is undragoned, it's, that doesn't happen in real time. Interestingly enough, we have Eustace appear after this transformation, and he tells a story about meeting Aslan to Edmund. So it's not like that happens in real time. It's, it's a story. And even he mentions specifically, he doesn't even want to tell the story of how he became the dragon. He just wants to tell the story of how he became undragoned. And so Lewis, uh, multiple times throughout this chapter, uses story as a positive way of communicating something. I mean, that's what story is, right? But I think it's, he's very particular in the way that he has shaped this small little chapter, although it's full of many things, into the role that stories can play in our lives. And I, I want to mm-hmm. explore that a little bit as we go through this, but that really stuck out to me, this, the prominence of story. And he's telling us a story that is very familiar, at mm-hmm. least if you've grown up in the church, but he's telling it in a different way that gives you a different perspective on yeah. the story you've already heard. Yeah. Well, let's go ahead and jump into the chapter. So chapter seven begins with Eustace, with the rest of the crew finding out that Eustace is the dragon. What's going on there, Phil? So they are talking to the dragon and they're trying to find out who he is. They think he might be Lord Octasian. 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 Lord Octasian. And luckily Eustace is still able to understand them and nod and shake his head, which I think would be hilarious because he's so much larger than... The people. Well, so, I can't wait till you see the movie. Yeah. I'm, uh, it's very hilarious. I'm actually... But not in a good way. Not in a good way. <laughs> no, I was excited to see how they did it, but... It's still fun. Yeah. So once everyone finds out that it is useless, their reaction is, man, that that's a real bummer. And they console him by saying, hey, I'm sure there's a way to reverse it and we'll figure it out. But they're really not sure what to do in the meantime. Oh, yeah. And he ends up being really helpful, which is great. Because I think he recognizes that he's been a real bother to everybody. And now he's even more of a bother, but he, he wants to help out. So he starts carrying things and helping load up the ship. Mm-hmm. He goes and he kills goats and brings back the carcasses for them to eat. He has a few for himself. Um, and then he also gives people rides. or take, <laughs> Which is so fun. I love the way he says it. He takes them on a fly. <laughs> like instead of going for a nice drive, mm-hmm. you go for a nice fly. And he, he takes those away. Doesn't he take the goats away and he eats them raw? And he's he's courteous enough to not do that in front of the others. He doesn't want everyone to see that. Do you think here, let's actually talk about this for a second. Is he eating these goats far away from every far away from everyone else because he is self-conscious of you know, eating them like a dragon? Or is he trying to be respectful of the others? Which one's happening right now? I believe it's both, but it's mainly he's embarrassed. He's embarrassed. This yeah. is not he, He's a pretty pop, proper person. That's true, yeah. And I don't think this transformation that's happened to him internally has fully happened at this point. I think it's yeah. happening. Mm-hmm. But it's. I don't think he's just, oh, I'm going to be nice and not eat raw goat in front of them. Which yeah. is nice. You don't usually want your friends to eat raw goat in yeah. front of you. I have the same policy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's why you and I don't eat dinner together usually. Yeah, especially raw goat. <laughs> During this kind of sequence of events, as at Eustace, sorry, Edmund and Eustace, ooh, it's tough. Yeah. <laughs> As Eustace is helping the rest of the crew, Lewis writes this sentence, which is pretty important here. 
The pleasure, quite new to him, of being liked and still more of liking other people was what kept Eustace from despair. So Eustace, who has been quite the misanthrope throughout this book, as he has become more separated than he's ever been from the crew of the Dawn Treader, it's now here that he most needs them and most wants to be closer to them. I mean, that's pretty like easy stuff to understand, but I, I do think that this is so important for his character. Phil, any other things that stand out to you before we get into the real meat of this chapter? Here, as he is still a dragon, anything that stands out to you? He's given a sense of hope by Reepicheep. Yeah, yeah. And Reepicheep says, hey, this has happened lots of times before, but many had recovered and lived happily ever afterwards. And I think that probably helps him keep going. Why do you think Reepicheep reaches out to him like this? Reepicheep is a a true gentleman mouse and in, in a really good way. He, he's very fair, but he, and he isn't going to put up with stuff, but he also recognizes that you need to treat people with respect. And I think he, he's living out the treat people how you would want to be treated part. Yeah. He's very selfless. Lewis tells us that he sneaks away, not sneaks away, but steps away from the rest of the group. You know, when they're at the campfire and stuff like that, he would, uh, creep away from the merry circle at the campfire and sit down by the dragon's head. And and the thing that's funny about this is this could potentially hurt him. Lewis says he has to be well to the windward to be out of the way of his smoky breath. Like, Reepicheep's very small. Yeah. And Eustace, as a dragon, is very large. And Reepicheep still goes out of his way to minister, to comfort Eustace. And I, I think this is a key part of Eustace's transformation is this kind of simple charity that Reepicheep offers him, right? But then right before Eustace returns, Lewis does give us this one other sentence, which I want to hear your thoughts on, Phil. He writes this, and poor Eustace realized more and more that since the first day he came on board, he had been an unmitigated nuisance and that he was now a greater nuisance still. My question there was, how did he realize that he had been a nuisance? It makes sense where he recognizes he's being a nuisance now because they can't fit him on the ship and that he's delaying their plans. But did it, does he overhear people talking with his dragon ears about how he used to be? Or is he just recognizing it because now he can see it in physical form? No, I, I don't think that's it. I think, I think that's a good idea, but, but at least my takeaway was that Eustace is now seeing all of his problems be magnified, right? Before he was a nuisance, I mean, that's, that's the word that Lewis uses to the ship, right? All of them were bothered by him and annoyed by him, but it mostly threw, flew under the radar for Eustace. And it's not until he literally is too big to fit on the ship and they're actually have some large problems other than he's just annoying them that he actually experiences what it's like to be a burden to someone. I don't think he's ever felt this before, yeah. but I think he can't really deny it because the problem has become so magnified at this point. He realizes, Oh, I don't fit on the Don Treader or, or well, when we leave, how are they going to feed me? And this is an actual problem. And now that that problem has become so large, he can't deny it. Okay. And so for the first time in his life, he's actually feeling or realizing that he's a burden to other people. And then once that feeling has creeped into his heart, into his head, he's he's like, wait a second. 
I think maybe it's been like this for so long, but it ha- that problem has to be magnified in order for him to realize it. Yep. And I, I've been there too, where you, you recognize Have you been a dragon that, before? Yeah, have you not? Nope, I have you're, not. I've been in a place where you recognize that something you're doing is not being well-received, and then you wonder, well, how long has this been going on? Oh, yeah. And I'm, that's not a good feeling either. It's the worst feeling, right? Yeah. And you go back and you think through so many things. I mean, I think we all can empathize with Eustace here. Because we've all done, have you ever like left, maybe you haven't felt this way. I know sometimes I'll, you know, we'll leave a party or something and I'll turn to to Anna and I'll be like, was I annoying? Like, was I, you know, too loud or too obnoxious or something? And, you know, there the, the times when you start to recognize like, man, maybe I was, you know, not the best person that I could be or maybe I was kind of gossiping or something, you know, mm-hmm. you're speaking unkindly. You start to then start play back and when there is some kind of revelation of actually, I don't think that was helpful or that that was kind, you start kind of playing back stuff in your head and sometimes it can become very unhelpful, but there's other times where it can be helpful not to like sit and wallow in shame or guilt, but to, to recognize, Oh wait, that's what was really happening. And now I can th- try to get rid of, you know, try to avoid that in the future. And I, I think that's what's happening to Eustace. I think it's good on him that he doesn't just sit and wallow in the shame of, of you know, all of his past actions, which he easily could. Mm-hmm. Well, then six days pass. They've been on Dragon Island for six days, and Edmund is, is uh, sleeping one morning, and he wakes up to see Eustace coming out uh, from between the trees. Hey, what's Eustace tell him? So Eustace tells Edmund, hey, it's me. I'm not a dragon anymore. Can we go talk? I want to tell you what led to me no longer being a dragon. And he also, this is a great technique by Lewis. He says, I don't even want to tell you how I became a dragon. Now we don't have to hear that part again. Yeah. Because <laughs> he, he, he could very easily summarize it. But he also, he wants to get to the real part, which is how he's no longer a dragon. And I think that when people share their testimony, it is helpful to know who they were. But we don't necessarily need to find out how they became who, who they hmm. were. We want to find out the real cool part, which is how they became who they are today after being saved. Yeah. And Edmund allows him to do this. He says, fire away. And I, I think this is great. I, I love when Lewis does this, or any any author does this, when, you know, when Lewis was writing Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he did not know he was going to be writing Don Treader. You know, he might have had inklings of, ah, nice. <laughs> I didn't mean to do that. Uh, he might have had some inklings of ideas for the future, but it's not like these were all planned out in advance. And it's it's kind of like he realizes he has two great, you know, toys in the sandbox, if you will, and realizing, oh, these would go really well together. Because what how great is it that Eustace comes to Edmund of all people to share this story? Yeah. And Edmund is willing to hear it because he has a similar story. Exactly. And I think Edmund receives this better than anyone else would have. I mean, Lucy has been so patient and kind to Eustace throughout the book, but I don't think she would have responded the same way that Edmund does. I mean, Edmund, you know, at the end of this, I know we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, but Edmund's response is like, I was way worse than you. Like I was a traitor. And we, and we talked about this a couple, I think when Sarah Jane was on a couple chapters ago of how I still think that Edmund's, you know, his, his sin is, is worse than, you know, in a way his, wrongdoings are worse because he knows all along that it's that it's wrong Eustace is just ignorant and I, yeah. I mean, there's good and bad parts of both of those but it's a very different uh, approach to their actions Eustace really until becoming the dragon doesn't realize I I'm the bad guy yeah. you know and so I love I love the the patience and the grace uh, with which Edmund receives this story from Eustace 
Me too. So let's jump into the story, right? So Eustace is in dragon form at this point, and he sees the lion. <laughs> he's in dragon form. He's I in like dragon that. Form. Yeah. He's dragoned. Mm-hmm. He's not undragoned yet. He sees Aslan. He doesn't know it's Aslan. He sees the lion, and he thinks he's afraid, but he also, I think the thought went through his head, could I take on a lion? I am a dragon right now. Mm-hmm. But he's afraid for seemingly a different reason. And then also the the lion tells him to follow him, but he also doesn't necessarily say it out loud, which is very interesting. I'm curious how he perceived that he needed to follow him. So he starts following him, and then they go to a pool. I'm going to take it from there. So Aslan has you know this light shining about him, and he leads Eustace to a pool of water. And it says the water's bubbling up from the bottom of it. It's bigger than most wells. And somehow the... Aslan tells him he needs to undress, even though Eustace isn't really sure that's exactly how it was communicated. He does know this within himself. Yeah. And so then here's what C.S. Lewis writes. Well, and this is Eustace talking. I was just going to say that I couldn't undress because I hadn't any clothes on when I suddenly thought that dragons are snaky sort of things and snakes can cast their skins. Oh, of course, thought I. That's what the lion means. So I started scratching myself and my scales began coming off all over the place. And then I scratched a little deeper, and instead of just scales coming off here and there, my whole skin started peeling off beautifully, like it does after an illness, or as if I was a banana. In a minute or two, I just stepped out of it. I could see it lying there beside me, looking rather nasty. It was a most lovely feeling. So I started to go down into the well for my bath. But just as I was going to put my feet into the water, I looked down and saw that they were all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly just as they had been before. Oh, that's all right, said I. It only means I have another smaller suit on underneath the first one, and I'll have to get out of it too. So I scratched and tore again, and this underskin peeled off beautifully, and out I stepped and left it lying beside the other one and went down to the well for my bath. Well, exactly the same thing happened again. And I thought to myself, oh dear, However many skins have I got to take off? And Eustace goes on to talk about how he he longs to have this off, but he just can't do it. This is a pretty important passage. It is. And then Aslan tells him that he's going to have to do it. Aslan himself. Yeah. I'll read that part too. Then the lion said, but I don't know if it spoke. You will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you. But I was pretty near desperate now. So I just lay down flat on my back and let him do it. The first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked the scab off a sore place, it hurts like Billy O, but it is fun to see it coming away. And then Edmund goes, I know exactly what you mean. And Edmund does know exactly what he means. Because he's had a similar experience. Yeah. I love, I don't, I don't know what Billy O means, but I'm assuming it hurts. I think he wrote The Piano Man. (laughs) I feel like that's one of your jokes. Sorry. (laughs) That's good. Well, wow. This is a powerful passage. The part where he says, I thought it had gone right into my heart. My note is, because it did. (laughs) Let's, let's talk about this here because there's so much imagery. There's so much metaphor here. And again, this is probably one of the most famous passages in all, within all seven books. And I, I, honestly, I don't even know where to start because I have so many things I want to talk about here. 
Um, well, you also said it it was popular, and I assume that means that a lot of people have written about it. Yeah, that's true. I actually have pulled quite a few different things um, from different people. I mean, I even remember hearing about it in... Um, our head of school at work has has done some sometimes at chapel has has talked about this passage because many of our kids you know read Chronicles of Narnia. I remember hearing about it in sermons growing up, and then just it, I just feel like it comes out so often because it's such a beautiful example that many of us can relate to, despite the fact that I don't think you and I haven't, and I don't think any of our listeners have been dragons before, right? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, I guess what where we'll start is this idea that Eustace goes down to this the water and he has to take off his dragon skin and he does actually do it he does it multiple times but for some reason it doesn't stick as soon as he makes it down to the water he realizes it's still there and it's not until he submits to aslan that he's able to really actually get this off right it's painful it hurts it's not the same as when he's trying to fix this skin himself. And this is easily like in our own lives with, with sin, uh, with the things that we need to be freed of, right? Yeah. Uh, Father David Poking, I think I'm saying his name right, uh, he's a Catholic priest, and he actually writes this in response to this section. He says, To heal us, to perfect us, the Lord Jesus is willing to dig more deeply into us than we would ever dig into ourselves where we might gloss, well, at least I didn't murder anyone this week, at least I didn't commit adultery, he judges our every angry word tantamount to murder, our every lustful thought tantamount to adultery. Mm. So pulling right there from the Sermon on the Mount, and, uh, and he goes on to say this, And even if my own conscience is so dulled that I still discern in my soul no sins of commission, there are always the sins of omission. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He's quoting directly from the Gospels. Uh, Love one another as I have loved you. Again, another quote from the, the Gospels. I mean, this is big, right? And that's, by the way, I'll, I'll post that. It's from an uh, article about Christ tears off our scales, Aslan, Eustace, and the pain of confession. And so that's, I mean, one of the big takeaways is this idea that this is, we cannot fix the broken things within ourselves. We are not able to make that kind of transformation. We can we can do small things, but we, we and, don't... And temporary things. Exactly. But when we really need to finally go to that water to get clean, we don't have it within us. Yeah, we can't do it. To take that a step further, Marvin Hinton, he writes this, Eustace first scratches off his scales or sins and then his whole skin or sinful self. Despite several sheddings of skin, however, he is unable to change himself, therefore making one of Lewis's favorite theological points from his adult nonfiction, that Christianity is not simply a matter of self-improvement, but of becoming something entirely different. This thought can be seen clearly in mere Christianity. And he's quoting here from mere Christianity. It may be hard for an egg to turn into a bird. It would be a jolly sight harder for it to learn to fly while remaining an egg. When Eustace comes up out of the water, he has changed from a dragon into a, into a boy, externally showing his alteration and literally exemplifying 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Mm. This is a big deal, what's it happening is. here. This is when, I think this is so important, because I think this is one of the times where Lewis's nonfiction meets his children's literature here. Mm. And you see a lot of the things he's writing about, and it's so clear, like, oh, this is those ideas coming together in this story, and they're being communicated in this story. Yeah. And what, what are some of your thoughts as you hear some of these passages being read? 
I think that as I was reading this story itself, I thought of the own, my own times where I had tried to solve something all on my own. But it wasn't until you handed it over to Jesus that it's actually mm-hmm. starting. It, it's, not, it's not even that it got instantly taken away. It's that that was the beginning of it actually starting. And we, we talk about this at the end of the passage too, where he's, he has a few relapses. Oh, and yeah. He, and he's still not perfect, but the, the journey has started. That process of him permanently being freed from this has begun. And so when I have passages like that confirm the fact that this is a metaphor for sin and being cleansed from that sin, it just makes me think, man, a lot of people recognize this too. What is the importance of Eustace turning over on his back and making and letting Aslan be the one that really pulls this off? I think he has fully realized that he cannot do this on mm-hmm. his own. And so by lying on his back, he's submitting to the authority of Aslan in this case. Yeah, I mean, he's, a, he's you know, he's sh- he's got his strong hide on his back. It's When he rolls over, he's got his, his stomach, he's bearing uh, his yeah. stomach, which is the much more softer part of him as a, as a dragon. And he's kind of completely submitting uh, to Aslan. And it's painful. And I, I, it's so good here that Lewis talks about how painful, or Eustace really, talks about how painful it is for this to happen. That when he was doing it, it almost felt kind of good, right? Yeah. That he was doing it. But when an Aslan does it, it it's painful. It, the pain is tremendous, yeah. right? And that so often that is true. It, it really hurts to get rid of a lot of these things that and, need to be gone. And to die to yourself in that way. Yeah. And he's literally dying to himself as the dragon. Yes. Do you think this is Eustace's baptism? I, I think when he gets into the water afterwards, that is his baptism. I think that the accepting Christ into your heart and the baptism are purposely separated in this story too. And so he, Aslan begins working on him and then he's baptized. Well, as I was reading more about this idea of this pool as Eustace's baptism, I went back to the Keys of the Chronicles, and Marvin Hitton had written this, which I thought was so interesting. The garden holds a marble bath with a bubbling well at the bottom of it. According to the Didache, a valuable collection of apostolic practice dating from around the early 2nd century, early Christians preferred to baptize people in living water, meaning bubbly or running water, as opposed to the contemporary practice of still water and baptistries. The unusual feature of Aslan's baptistry, where living water comes up from a well rather than a spring as one might expect, issues from the biblical story of the Samaritan woman at the well, to whom Christ offers living water from a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Hmm. And, you know, although this is, this is your, these are Hinton's thoughts on this text, I was really sold on this idea of this clearly being Eustace's baptism scene. And I, because I think for a long time as I read this, I wasn't always convinced that you know, this was necessarily a baptism because, again, these are supposals. They are not straight-up allegories. And so in some ways, I thought the idea that Eustace gets baptized and then becomes a good person was a little maybe too on the nose. And it, obviously, that's also just not how things necessarily—you don't become baptized and then all of a sudden, you're a great person. Mm-hmm. Um, but reading this and thinking back to the you know church history of this idea of this bubbling water and stuff, I think that's more than just a coincidence— and I do think that Lewis wants us to to imagine this as he is now baptized, he has been justified, if you will, and now the practice of sanctification begins. Hmm. And then we and we clearly hear that this is use this, you know, 
he has setbacks. He has slip-ups. He's not a perfect person after this. But I think, what's the word that Lewis used? I think he says the cure had been found or something like that. He says the cure had begun. Had begun. Okay. So this story, any last thoughts on this, this story before we wrap it up? I love the confirmation that Edmund gives Eustace. Eustace starts to think, maybe it was a dream. And Edmund goes, it wasn't a dream. And he points out the physical representation of the change. Mm-hmm. He's like, you're not a dragon anymore. And you have these new clothes on that you didn't have before. And I think that Edmund is playing a really critical role here. Having been someone, we've all, everyone who has accepted Christ into their life for real is coming from a sinful past and will continue to sin. But it's, it's different now that you have Christ on your side with that. Um, but Edmund's role here is he, having gone through this process in a slightly different way is now to affirm Eustace in his new transformation. And I love how he does it. And he just, he point, he points out things that Eustace is a little shaky on. Like, was this a dream? Mm-hmm. And I think that's, it's really critical. And I think it's a role that, um, people need to recognize they need to play as, um, people come to faith. Yeah, and this begins to answer that question that we've had so far, which is, what is Edmund's role in this story, right? He's clearly not the main character. It, mm-hmm. That's Eustace, for the most part. And it, the question we've we've had is, why do Edmund and Lucy get to come back, and Peter and Susan not, right? Because it felt for us a little bit at the beginning, it's, you know, Edmund and Lucy almost feel like an afterthought. Maybe they shouldn't have come back either. And I think here we're getting one of our answers. Edmund is here to kind of shepherd Eustace and to affirm this transformation happening within him. And what great progression this is, because literally two books ago, at this point in the story, Edmund was getting ready to betray his brothers and sisters uh, to the White Witch. And so here we go, uh, almost, you know, two books later, he's sitting here encouraging someone else, like, yeah, this was real, and you are changing, and that's a good thing. Mm. One other thing I wanted to mention right before Edmund uh, encourages Eustace is the way that Eustace acknowledges that you know he's back to uh, his own body. He was so excited about his own arms. Right? He says, I'm so happy to see my own arms. And he says this, I know they're no muscle and are pretty moldy compared with Caspian's, but I was so glad to see them. And it's, it's a little silly. It's funny. But also Eustace is acknowledging faults within himself like a physical like yeah like i don't have very strong muscles that's very different than eustace you know three chapters ago he wouldn't have acknowledged something like this and he's saying oh you know i was so happy to have my body back even if you know it's a little you know weak and scrawny or something and i think that's that just shows how he's already changed he's acknowledging a fault within himself and even at the end of the chapter when they're preparing to leave the island he has no desire to go back and get more treasure he doesn't have any of the treasure that he put it in his pockets before he became a dragon yeah. and he knows there's more back there, but he and everyone else, they don't have any desire to go back. Yeah. I don't blame and them. That indicates another real change for Eustace too. The chapter then kind of wraps up here. You know, Caspian names the, the Island dragon Island and they get ready to leave again. Lewis tells us that from you know that time forth, Eustace was a different boy. He wasn't perfect, but like you said, the cure had begun. Yeah. Any last thoughts about this chapter before we wrap our, our time up here? I'm curious if you have any thoughts on the... It's not it's not referred to as a bracelet. It's an arm armband or arm ring. How do they say it at the beginning? 
Uh, the arm ring. Yeah, hyphenated. Arm ring. Arm ring, just like a lamp dash post. <laughs> so Caspian takes it, and he throws it up in the air. And then my understanding is he's throwing it up so that whoever catches it can keep it. Mm-hmm. But it gets stuck on a rock, and they just leave it there. And it's probably still there to this day. I wonder what your thoughts are on that. I don't know. It might be a stretch. But I was taking this. I was making a, a connection to Galatians 2.20. Right, so I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And this idea of like Eustace, he can't take anything with, and it's not him. It's not just him. It's Caspian and 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 Lucy as well too. But they can't take any of these things from their past life with them. In order for them to leave Dragon Island, and especially Eustace, he has to leave behind his past. He can't even take a single bit of it with him. He mm. has to die to himself. And so right. that's that was my my thought. I, I kind of jumped straight to Galatians two twenty, which is one of my favorite verses. Uh, in the Bible. And this idea, like it has to stay. They can't even take a single small piece with them in order to, you know, to move on. And it's it mostly, you know, I'm not sure how in, in this, you know, this idea that I have, which is I'm just making up right now. Uh, I don't know how Lucy and Caspian fit into that, but it makes sense that you just can't take anything else with him. Right. Yeah. And I also, that, that bracelet has some real negative connotations to it. Mm-hmm. Or just some negative associations, I guess, would be a better way to say it. And I think it's good that no one takes it with them. And I think that's why then Lewis says, like, it, for all he knows, it's still hanging there yeah. until the world ends. It's not being touched, and it, you can't go back. And, you, and why would you? Why would you want to go back? Yeah. And why would you want it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's been all of this. I'm sure that Eustace sweated a lot as a dragon, right? Yeah. You don't and want it's that. dried blood and, oh, yeah, and dragon blood, too. Yeah. It's the worst kind. No offense. Uh, it's okay. I don't think we have any dragon listeners. <laughs> so before we wrap up, I just want to kind of book in this and go back to this idea I mentioned about stories at the beginning of the chapter. I think we get those three instances throughout this chapter <coughs> of stories being used to build up, to encourage, and just use for overall goodness, right? And I, th- I think Lewis is really trying to, to get us to understand how stories are beautiful and how they're good and how they can be good for our faith too. I mean, he was such a big proponent of this idea of the true myth, right? That, I mean, mm-hmm. the, the greatest story ever told is this in scripture and it just it happens to be true. Yes. And I think that's one of the things that he really is. He's almost like talking to readers that might be more like Eustace. He's like, en- engage with those stories, like lean into them. Yeah. Let, let them, you know, seep into your heart and into your mind and, respond to them. And I I, th- I think that's one of the things that's been really sticking out to me is this the beauty of stories. Yeah. I mean, this is also an interesting thing to me because I've heard, there are certain things that you hear in church all the time and you just hear in Christian culture all the time, but this is presented in such a different way. It gets me to listen again because after a while you can start to tune stuff out. Mm-hmm. And this is just another perspective because it's told through a story. And he's also talking about how you need stories to do stuff and yeah. how Eustace wasn't able to tell a story because he hadn't read the right stories or read the right kind of books in this mm-hmm. case. And I love that Lewis is saying they're important, but also providing a perfect example all in the same chapter. Well, Phil, that wraps up our, our coverage here of chapter seven. And this is one of those chapters that we've ended this story. So, I mean, you have no idea what comes next. No idea. Cause they just leave and we don't know anything else. Yeah, I even I made sure that we had more chapters. <laughs> oh yeah, because you have the big book. So for all you know, it's the silver chair next yeah, or something. Could That's be transitioning. 
I mentioned before, Phil, that each island or place that they visit will kind of focus on a different character. So obviously these last three chapters on Dragon Island focused heavily on Eustace. Who do you think we're going to spend time with next? I assume the rest of the crew. Maybe some Caspian in there. Well, pick pick one person. Just Caspian. You think the next time, the next chapter or so, we'll focus on some character development for Caspian? Yes. Cool. Or maybe Reepicheep. All right. Cool. But I can't my say my money's else. on Caspian. Great. Yeah, I can't say anything else. <laughs> I can't spoil it. But we'll be back next time though with chapter eight. It's called Two Narrow Escapes, and in that chapter, there are two narrow escapes. Ooh. Yeah, it's exciting, right? Yeah. But before we go, we do have some listener feedback. Yes. You, you want to do this one, Phil? I do. This one is from Hannah. Hi, Phil and Daniel. I have been thoroughly enjoying your exploration of the Voyage of the Dawn Treader in Season 3 and looking forward to journeying with you through the rest of the book. I was recently talking to a friend about Prince Caspian, and she brought up the inclusion of the Greek and Roman figures that we find in this book. This then got me thinking why Lewis decided to include these figures, and Tolkien's On Fairy Stories jumped to my mind. In this essay, Tolkien talks about how all mythologies contain truth, as they are a reflection of the ultimate truth, the truth of God the Creator. As Lewis and Tolkien were friends, and had many intellectual discussions, this inclusion of the characters by Lewis could be a nod to Tolkien's theory regarding the value of myths and the truth they hold. I am not a Lewis scholar, or even a Tolkien one, so I cannot say for certain if this is true, but I like it as a theory. Even if they aren't related, I love the idea that Tolkien explores in this essay, and would definitely recommend it. Thank you both for sharing your insights into this world I've come to wish was also my home, or at least I could be swept away to this magical land via wardrobe, horn, or painting. Further up and further in, Hannah. P.S. As there haven't been any wolves in Dawn Cheddar, <laughs> there has... There has been no mispronunciations, but I appreciate the effort all the same. Thanks, Hannah. <laughs> Thanks for emailing us again, Hannah. I do appreciate We have been that. working on it with him in other conversations outside of the podcast. We Am I talking about, at the pause, am I talking about wolves outside oh, of the so podcast? Oh, good. Look yeah, how good you get. I still have to like, catch my breath before I say it. Yeah. I'm so thankful for Hannah because I've been going about my entire life this way it's embarrassing i'm yep. almost 30 and i'm like <laughs> saying wolves all the time instead of wolves <laughs> so uh that's i'm really i think we can end the podcast at this point we don't need to go on i've learned how to pronounce that yep. word i realized recently, that was actually the whole goal when we were talking about this i thought oh we could do another book but this one has a lot of wolves well, the, we and can, it could really fix some <laughs> some speech problems that Daniel has. <laughs> well, I realized this too. I also, we were talking about this recently. It wasn't on the show or anything, but I s had said for a long time, I'd said pajamas incorrectly. I was saying pajamas. Like, why did no one ever tell me well, this it, growing it's up? It's not that pajamas is incorrect. It's just, it's way less common here. No, I Googled it and I couldn't find a, anyone saying. You couldn't find anyone saying. I watched a ton of YouTube videos of people saying the word <laughs> pajamas. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm the only person. Is it an accent? I don't think I have an accent. The, al maybe the algorithm at YouTube know. thinks you're really weird now. Yeah. <laughs> it's really into Star Wars, Narnia, scholarly <laughs> articles, <laughs> and pajamas. And, and pajamas. That's right. Um, well, I, I picked this, this email this week too uh, because it, it ties into what I've been saying throughout this episode, this idea of stories and myths and the fact that it's so beneficial to spend time in stories because even stories that aren't, you know, Christian in nature have elements of fact with them. That's what Tolkien is saying. All mythologies contain truth. I spend a lot of my time 
as an educator you know, of someone who teaches ancient and medieval history, I tell, I teach about a lot of myths and I, I really enjoy teaching myths. And it's so fun to then with my students sit down and be like, okay, so like let's, it's a Christian school. So we said, we'll sit down and we'll say, what, what are parts out of here that actually let's compare this, let's compare this uh, story. Um, you know, this creation story from India, let's compare it to the, the biblical narrative and let's mm. talk through things. And there's still many elements of truth in there. And it's so fun and so interesting because, like Tolkien says, all mythologies contain truth, and so we'll find elements of truth in all of these things, and they're able to actually point back to the ultimate truth, which mm. is which is God. Uh, and I, ju- I just really like this, and that's that's just been sticking out to me a lot. I know I, I feel I sound like a broken record, and I don't know how exciting it is for listeners to hear me, but I'm really just excited about this. You know, it's not my idea that I've come across, but just how much this idea of story and myth has been sticking out to me in Don Treader. I would have thought it would have been a different book, but this is the book that is... It's curious out. that it's this one that is sticking out. And I also, I'm reading, I just started reading, when we were back at the symposium, I got, oh, I can't even remember the name of it, but I'll probably, I'll find it later and link it in the description about, it's a book about Lewis and myth. And so I think that's just really sticking with me right now. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I could go on forever like this, but that's not what people want to hear. Is it Bandersnatch? So. No, Bandersnatch is Diana Glyer, and that's more about the relationship between the Inklings. Okay. The other, I don't I don't remember what it's called. I'll find it, and I'll put it in the description. I've just been skimming it. I've not been reading it. Because you, you said, Phil, that when you read nonfiction, you don't have to read the whole thing. So That's true. <laughs> You're not required to finish a book. I know. That's, I, that's, I'm kind of just skimming through it. I'm reading a lot of stuff right now, and so I've just been skimming through it when I'm free and stuff. And yeah. I, I like it a lot, and it's really making this stick out to me. But again, I can't remember the name of the book or the author, so... Yeah. Oh, I got the name of it. It's The Fawn's Bookshelf, C.S. Lewis on Why Myth Matters. Oh, cool. It's by uh, Charlie Starr. It's, and it's good so far. I'm, I'm really enjoying That's it. It's a great title. The Fawn's Bookshelf? Yeah. Do you, remember, do you know why it's called that? Is Man a Myth? Yeah, because on the, uh, or Tumnus has that on his uh, bookshelf, which is so fun. I love it's that. It's so funny. It, it's, what a great perspective where they're the myths. Yeah. <laughs> and they have a book on whether or not we're real. It reminds me, I know the movie's more famous, unfortunately, but... Have you ever read I Am Legend? I have not read it. It's like a little novella. It might even be a short story. It's only about like 100 pages or so. And it explores... The movie's more like a horror film kind of thing. But the book itself explores this idea of humans as kind of these legendary characters, more like a vampire would be, right? And huh. it's it's really... I mean, it's 100 pages. a really short, quick read. And the exploration of this idea of humans as mythical creatures or as these legendary creatures is really interesting. And none of that made it into the movie. Oh yeah. <laughs> All the things that made the book good, not there. I mean, the and, movie's not awful, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> and any nuance or anything else, this is uh, not the I am legend podcast though. So maybe that's, you know, when we finish the, uh, <laughs> that's what people are, are hungering for, right? After yeah. we're done with the Chronicles of Narnia, can you guys talk about I am legend? <laughs> Let's take it back to Will Smith. 2007. No, 2007. Oh, I'm pretty, I'm pretty seven. sure. I don't know. I haven't seen it since I saw it in theaters that yeah. one time. That was the movie that everyone saw because it came out over Christmas when it got back on the bus in either middle school or high school. Whatever. You had TVs on your bus? No, when we came back, oh, everybody oh. was able to talk about that movie. It it appealed to everybody for some reason. Everyone had gone to see it. And I was able to talk amongst different social groups about the oh, okay. same movie. Yeah. All I remember, besides not liking it, because I enjoyed the the book better, which is kind of the story. Had of my you life. read the book before the movie came out? I read it leading up to it, so I remember really? watching. So I definitely saw like the trailer for it. I was like, that looks really cool. And because I'm impatient, I read the the book. Yeah. 
And I remember being really disappointed when the movie came out. It has a lot of Bob Marley. Don't they? Isn't like Bob Marley? Not he's not in it, but don't yeah. they play Bob That's Marley? That's when I, I started listening to Bob Marley because of that movie. Really? <laughs> yeah, I had no idea who he was before that. I was like, oh, those are pretty good songs. Uh, so that, that's uh, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we are obviously, it uh, feels like we're doing Dancing Lawn stuff right now. <laughs> Just talking like this, but it's time to wrap up. So speaking of the Dancing Lawn, do you want to go ahead and do our uh, end credits here? Sure. This episode is made possible by our patrons over at patreon.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can listen to a bonus episode each month along with other rewards. Special thanks goes to Elias Dean, Stephen Page, and Madeline Heising for supporting us at the Care Paralevel level. Follow us into Narnia on our Twitter and Facebook pages. You can also send us feedback at thenarniapodcast at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 406-646-6733. We'd also love a review on Apple Podcasts. Helps other people find the show and join our read through. Also, make sure you have subscribed to the show in your favorite podcast app so you can wake up to a new episode every other Wednesday. Thanks for coming along on this journey, and we will be back next time for chapter eight.